Family first. The most important thing in the world is family. You don't choose your family. They are God's gift to you, as you are to them. There are lots of quotations that make us feel good about and lift up the value of family. But there's one quote from a very influential person that doesn't usually make it onto prints that people hang on the walls of their homes. It's a quote from Jesus when he said, unless you hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Really? Yeah, it's right there in Luke 14, 26. You can look it up. It's in red letters in your red letter edition Bible. It's a quotation of Jesus. Unless you hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. And so, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? That's the question we ask in our conversations in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. Well, hi, and welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And my guess is this makes you feel pretty uncomfortable because I think we all know that family, in the ideal, is a great part of life. So much of who we are is tied up in our family. And love, honor, care for, those are all things we believe that our faith in God promotes in relation to our grandparents, our parents, our spouse, our kids, our aunts and uncles, our cousins, yeah, our family. And while we all know the reality of family struggles as well, that no family is perfect, in most cases far from it, Our impression is that followers of Jesus are to be there for and love their family. And so to think that Jesus said, unless you hate your family, you cannot be my disciple, that's a huge disconnect. And so what Daniel is going to do this week is lead the group through some family-related stories in the Gospel of Luke and just live for a while with the tension that we feel that our Lord would even say this as we come to grips with what he meant. And so if you're ready, let's listen as Daniel jumps right in with both feet. Does Jesus really want me to hate my family? I'm gonna read a verse for us to get started. This is Luke chapter 14, verse 26. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. How do you feel about that? It's hard to swallow, isn't it? That's That's tough. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. My immediate response is that if we are to take that at face value, Jesus in this one case did not practice what he preached because from the cross he showed great love for his mother. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So he certainly wasn't hating her at that point. Yeah. And he calls us eventually to love our neighbor, and family is an immediate neighbor around us. So how can we both love the people around us but also hate yeah. them, right? So yeah. it's a pretty tricky But he doesn't tell us to hate our neighbor. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say you have to hate your neighbor True. to be a follower of me. I think it's yeah. ironic, too, that he is saying to hate your children. Yeah. Because that would almost then Mary and Joseph are supposed to hate him. It's a very contorted 
command. Something else has to be going on in the background. There's got to be another explanation, right? So one of the interesting things I've found as I've been thinking about that passage is that in the Gospel of Luke, which we're going to spend a lot of time reading Luke this week, Jesus actually talks about family quite a few times and interacts with his own family quite a few times. And we're going to look at these different interactions throughout the Gospel of Luke that I think are going to help us figure out, Mart, what you're hitting at, which is there's more going on here. There's a bigger story Mm -hmm. that's unfolding. And part of the discomfort that Jesus gives us by saying something like that is helpful for us in understanding the bigger story that's unfolding. And so for all of us, let's just put a pin in that verse and let it bother us as we go through some of these other conversations. And by our fourth conversation, we'll dive into that fully and deeply. But I think we need to have some other conversations first. Are you willing to go there with me? Yeah, and I want to highlight what you just said, because I think it's great for any conversation we're going to have, is that when we read something in Scripture and it makes us uncomfortable, maybe we need to remember to pause and look mm-hmm. at it in the entirety of the story. So yes, let's yeah. let's go. So let's start in a passage that might be a little less uncomfortable. I think it's still uncomfortable, but maybe a little less uncomfortable. And it's a snapshot that we get of Jesus in his childhood. And we're going to read this passage together. And then I want us to think about situations in our own life where maybe we've experienced something similar to what Jesus' parents experienced. But we're going to drop down for the first time in this story where Jesus is 12 years old. It's one of the very few snapshots that we get of Jesus as a child. And this is in toward the end of Luke chapter 2. So Jesus and his family are in their hometown of Nazareth, and they're traveling to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Now, before we read the passage, though, did you catch that first part that Jesus was in their hometown of Nazareth? That's kind of interesting, isn't it, to think of Jesus as having a hometown? I don't know about you, but that actually feels a little bit weird to me that God has a hometown. But we're not talking about the invisible God, right? We're talking about (laughs) the Son of God in the flesh. He's got to be somewhere. He's got to be somewhere. Yeah, that's his earthly address. Yeah. Yeah, to me, that's just part of the whole expression of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with Mm -hmm. us. Yeah. And so because he was God with us, not God apart from us, that means things like a hometown and a biological family and perhaps a job of some kind. All of that makes a little bit of sense if he's going to be God with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really experiencing life as we do. Yeah. So it's interesting. Jesus has a hometown. It's a small hometown, probably around 500 people at this time, the hometown of Nazareth. And this big group of family members are going to leave Nazareth and go up to Jerusalem for one of the high holy days for the feast of Passover. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up in the story. So they've gone to Jerusalem for Passover and they're on their way home. And his parents have realized that Jesus isn't there. And so they have rushed back to Jerusalem, frantically searching for Jesus. They finally see him, and he's engaging with religious leaders in the temple. And that's where we'll pick up just reading this short part, Luke chapter 2, verse 48. Okay. So when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he said to them. Yeah, so that phrase that really jumped out to me was great anxiety. 
Jesus's actions of staying back in Jerusalem caused his mom and dad great anxiety. No kidding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no kidding. It doesn't sound like a perfect child, does it? No. Yeah, right. No. Yeah, and that phrase actually means to be in agony. So this isn't just some like sugar-coated, oh, anxiety, but it's Jesus, everything will be okay. Like they're really feeling the stress of losing their child, which is something that I know some of us can relate to as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when we moved from West Virginia to Southern California, we'd only been there two or three days in Long Beach, where our house was. We went to a department store there because Marlene needed some things for the house. And we had four kids at the time. And one of them, Stephen, who was five, Stephen wandered off somehow. We had the other three pretty well in hand, but he's the one who got away. And we searched the store up and down. We looked through all the clothes racks. We looked behind the furniture. We looked out in the mall outside the store. We came back into the store about 45 minutes of searching to no avail. And our names were spoken over the loudspeaker (laughs) that we need to go across the street to a separate building where the (laughs) auto repair shop was. because he was over there and we went over there and somehow he had actually connected with my secretary's husband who was a mechanic in that auto shop and that was one of the scariest things we've ever had because we had no idea where he was I think it a is lot of terrifying yeah. Yeah, yeah you know i can remember being at a shopping mall too and my son was maybe four and we were at an elevator and it opened up and he went into it and it closed and he went down <laughs> I was really? like, wait, wait, wait. And the best thing about it was it was glass on the other side. So I could run to the stairs and watch his face as he was How going. How far down does it go? It was, yeah, it was just like, ah! But uh-huh. yeah, you yeah. just feel like, what kind of parent am I if I don't know where my mm-hmm. child is? Yeah. At the same time, what kind of child is it? I mean, this is Jesus. He's about 12 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And do I have the time right for about three days he must have been yeah. around the temple, hanging around. I mean, what kind of consideration did he not give to his parents yeah. during that time? To let him know. Yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. In fact, Eugene Peterson, in describing this passage, quotes Jesus' mom this way. Young man, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been half out of our minds mm. looking for you. Mm. So this idea that they're upset, that they're hurt, that they've experienced this agony— And you're right, Mark, for three days, Jesus has been missing because they were already a day journey into going home to Nazareth when they realized that Jesus isn't there. It sounds like he's not honoring his parents. It does, which is one of the commandments, right? And he's the God child. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because once uh, Mary says this to Jesus, why have you done this to us? He gives this little bit of an explanation, but the Bible tells us that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. And I think that's one of the key points maybe that helps us when we get to uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable passages in the Bible is even the people closest to Jesus often didn't get what Jesus was saying. Mm. And that's going to be something I think that'll help us as we go through some of these other passages as well. And I just wonder in this setting, as they go back to Nazareth, did Joseph grabbed Jesus by the ear and hold on to that ear all the way back, right, to make sure that they were getting back. But how does that strike you that Jesus would cause deep anxiety and agony toward his family? Does that make you as uncomfortable as it does me? Yes, yes. It doesn't make me as uncomfortable as it makes you. 
in a sense, it kind of just gives me a fresh sense of Jesus's humanity. Hmm. What do you mean? And what do you mean by that? I'm not exactly sure what I mean. Mm-hmm. But, How do you uh, reconcile <laughs> it, Bill, with that commandment that children are to obey and to honor their parents? Yeah. Well, in a different sense, he was honoring his true parent, his father in heaven. He was in his father's house doing his father's business. And I almost wonder if when he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, that that's in juxtaposition to her words, your father and I have been looking for you. That's a good And it's point. almost kind of like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, my father knows where I've been the whole time so we've got I'm this, in his house. Yeah, we've got this dual parentage, which yeah. we all really okay. have, and he's maybe modeling that. The other thing that strikes me is that he is 12. And mm-hmm. in Hebrew culture, 12 is right on the turning point, right? That's the a good point. And in the big story of Scripture, maybe this is a little step forward just mm-hmm. to make the point, this son isn't like just any other child mm-hmm. or son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think what we're getting a snapshot of, and this is going to become even more clear as we go through more passages, is there's something else going on here. And we're getting a glimpse of that as early as 12 years old mm-hmm. with Jesus, that something different is happening. There's a bigger story unfolding. And so we're going to have to live with the tension of this passage and a few other passages as we continue to work toward the question, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? And just remember, okay, there's something else going on here. There's a bigger story unfolding. What is that bigger story? And how does that help us as we walk into some of these really uncomfortable passages together? These passages are going to make us feel a little uncomfortable as we look at what Jesus did and what he said about family. And as Daniel said, we're just going to have to let it bother us for a while and live with that tension as we look at some passages in Luke and talk about them. Because admittedly, the topic of family can be complicated. Why? Well, because our expectation most often is that family are the people who are to love you the most. But Sometimes those are the people that hurt us the most, and sometimes those are the people that we hurt the most. Even those with great family relationships still cringe at certain memories or experiences that are connected to their family. And so let's listen as Daniel continues to take the group into the Gospel of Luke, looking at some family-related things in the life of Jesus. All right, I'm going to start off by just reminding us of what we've talked about so far. So first, I read Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. And we talked about how uncomfortable that passage is. Mm -hmm. And I said, we'll get to it, and we are going to get to that. But then in our last conversation, we talked about how Jesus is just not an ordinary child, (laughs) right? And what kind of happened in our last conversation? Well, we talked about when he was, quote unquote, lost. He stayed Mm -hmm. behind in Jerusalem and Mary and Joseph had great agony and, and went searching for him. And it makes us very uncomfortable because it looks like he's disobeying his parents, mm-hmm. which would be against God's commands. And yet he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And mm-hmm. Bill, I think you brought up that he has a dual citizenship, you know, if you will. He's really choosing to obey his heavenly father. But it's hard for us to swallow this when mm-hmm. we know what it's like to have a child go off. And we don't want that to happen. Right. Yeah. 
And they admit, Mary and Joseph admit that they didn't understand what was going on at that point, that how Jesus's response helped with the fact that he had caused them deep anxiety and pain. Mm -hmm. And so throughout this series, we're going to look at a few different places where Jesus either interacts with his own family or talks about family in general. And each of these are pretty uncomfortable leading up to a conversation about, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? Mm -hmm. So the next passage after Jesus causing great anxiety for his mom and dad is Luke chapter 8, specifically verses 19 through 21. So let's go ahead and read those, and then we can talk about the context of these verses. Mark, do you have that for us? I do. So verse 19 says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. And Jesus replied, My mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. What an interesting response, right? So, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. They want to say hi. Are they outside? <laughs> right? Like what? Yeah. Like Jesus is driving at something different here. So let's talk about the context about this passage, and then we can kind of jump in and specifically talk about that. It's worth noting that Matthew tells the same story, mm. and the response that Matthew includes it says Jesus pointing to his disciples said, here are my mother and my brothers. Mm -hmm. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Mm -hmm. And so, which almost adds another layer of maybe a little bit of discomfort. It sounds, it sounds so insulting to his mother. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, I'm trying to put this in modern day terms, you know, pretend like your, your child is a tennis star or a musician or whatever, and you think you could have a backstage pass, right? I'm his mom, you know, I'm the one who took him to all those practices, you know, let me in. And they're like, oh, don't even know who you are. What? Yeah, exactly. So again, another uncomfortable place with mm -hmm. an interaction mm -hmm. of family. So the context is interesting in Luke. We have Jesus accepting the touch of a sinful woman who poured an alabaster jar of oil on Jesus, washed his feet, honored him with kisses. Jesus has been consistently hanging out with the wrong types of people, which we see throughout his entire ministry, at least wrong types of people according to the world. He should be hanging out with the scholars, with the teachers of the law, with the scribes, but instead he's hanging out with fishermen and he's hanging out with this sinful woman. In fact, there's a lot of women that are following Jesus, which disciples are typically men. So what's going on there? And then he tells this parable and it's the parable of the sower. And that parable ends in Luke chapter eight, verse 15. Maybe Bill, could you read that for us? And the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Yeah, so he's just told the parable of the sower, and he ends that parable talking about this good soil, that when his teaching is planted in this good soil, it bears good fruit. It changes the person. They live differently as a result of the teachings that they've heard because they're putting it into practice and bearing out that fruit mm. in their life. While he's saying those things and explaining this parable is when his mom and his brothers come up and they want to see him. So that's the context that we get. And so both in Luke and Matthew, we have the context of those who really get it, those who hear what Jesus is saying and believe it and put it into practice. It's good fruit. They become true followers of him. And I think one of our problems would be reading this is if Jesus were simply a human like us, I mean, if that's all he was, we read this and say he's narcissistic. 
I mean, Ooh, just yeah. imagine somebody, a teacher, who if somebody listens to him and does what he wants him to do, look, he treats them like family, and he, he insults his mother and brothers in the yeah. process. Yeah, in fact, the narcissism would be even more intense with the interaction with his family. Yeah. Because it'd be like, well, actually... I even have a different kind of family, which are those who do whatever I say, right? Mm-hmm. Is right. kind of what you're driving at Cultish, yeah. there. Mm-hmm. So the question that we're kind of forced to ask is, is Jesus being rude to his family here? But let's think about what Jesus doesn't say. So for example, does Jesus ever say, my mother and my brothers who are outside are not my family? No. Good point. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he never he never says that. Mm-hmm. Does the passage ever tell us if Jesus goes and talks to them or engages with them after he says this? No. No, it doesn't. So Jesus doesn't say that they're not his family. We don't know if he goes and talks to them or not afterwards. And so I just wonder here if Jesus is doing what he does often. He just told this parable of, hey, you see all this farming going on? This is a great picture of the kingdom of God. Whenever he runs into any kind of bread or water or wine or other things, Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach. So the fact that his mother and his brothers show up, is this just another place where Jesus is saying, hey, speaking of mother and brothers, who are those who really are my mother and my brothers? How does that strike you? Does that sound possible? I think by reading back into it like we do— we could come up with that kind of conclusion, that that's Mm -hmm. the spirit of what was happening here. But it sure didn't sound like it from his mere words. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree, Martin. I think a lot of times when we're faced with these difficult passages, we do want to find some way to soften it so that Jesus doesn't end up looking bad. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wondering, going back to our friends Randy and Brandon with misreading scripture with Western eyes, they said one of the key things in scripture is the things that are left unsaid Mm -hmm. because the people in the culture would have understood it, so they didn't have to explain it to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's something else going on culturally, even in the way Jesus said that the crowd listening would thought, oh, okay, that that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But we don't get it because of that cultural disconnect. I like how that you just said that, Bill. Daniel, your question was, does he say that his mother and brothers were not his mother and brothers. Maybe this is a statement of inclusion rather than exclusion. It's easy to read it of, I'm excluding my mother and brothers from the backstage pass, if you will. But what he's really saying is that you, if you follow and put this into practice, you are family to me as well. And that's very different. You know, it's yeah. both of you are making good points. I just think, though, he's trying to shock the crowd. I mean, mm. when you think of what he's coming up against, the kind of religious practices and leaders who have so misled the people. It's like he's got to get their attention. Yeah. And and he's kind of leading up to the fact that he's unlike any other rabbi out there. And I think he's also trying to point to part of why he's here, which is to introduce the world to the fact that there's a bigger story that's going on. And he's getting ready to lay down his life and rise again to invite others into God's Mm. family, right? There's a bigger family story that's happening than just biology. And Jesus is trying to 
even indicate early on in the Gospel of Luke that there's a bigger story going on. There's a parallel passage, actually, that might be helpful as well. This is Luke chapter 11. Notice, again, these are in Luke, so it's interesting to kind of follow this theme of family through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. Elisa, will you read that for us? Okay. While he was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Hmm. So the passage we just saw with Jesus saying, my mother and my brothers, and then in Matthew pointing to his disciples and saying, those who actually do this stuff that we're talking about, those are the ones that are really a part of this family. Here's another example of Jesus taking what we're focused on, which is the biological family and pushing it to an even bigger thing, Mm -hmm. which is actually this family story is much bigger. And so I think that's helpful to us. I don't know that it takes away all the discomfort, Uh though, as we think about that interaction. I think that if we compare it to the conversation we had in our first conversation about Jesus as a boy in the temple, this could be seen as Jesus just being on mission, I mean, he was on mission doing his father's work in Luke chapter 2. Now he's on mission spreading the word and building God's family. And it is bigger than his biological family, much like his heavenly father was bigger than his earthly stepfather. And so there's some prioritization going on perhaps yeah. that continues here, even from the first example we saw in the first conversation. Yeah, I think you're right. By heaven's standards... It makes so much sense. But from human standards, I mean, from among people like us, everything he does is outrageous. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, right. Does anybody else bump at the thing of, but blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and yeah, obey it? Right. Yeah. Because you know, this is more of a contrast, whereas the other passage mm-hmm. was more, you know, of exclusion and inclusion. Mm-hmm. This is more of a contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we're going to see as we continue this series is that the things Jesus says get more outrageous and more extreme as we think about family and kind of this underlying theme of family in the Gospel of Luke. But just kind of as we end this conversation, I think maybe it's important for us just to pause for a second and ask the question that I think Jesus is forcing us to ask in our own lives, which is, who is my family, right? Like, Mm -hmm. who really is my family? Earthly families are important things, but Jesus is pushing toward an ultimate thing, an ultimate, a different definition of family. He's pushing us to look outside of our biological family and consider that something bigger is happening. And one of the primary characteristics of this family is that they bear good fruit, that as a result of them living in the world, existing in the world, the world is a better place as a result of this new type of family that Jesus is pushing us toward. In that segment of this podcast, they unpacked that story in Luke chapter 8 and explored the new family that Jesus described. And once again, it seems kind of harsh toward his earthly family. These family stories and what Jesus says about family are rather shocking, actually, and a bit puzzling and disturbing. And next, the subject of family division comes up. Do you have someone in your family that you are estranged from? Your relationship with them is, at this point, best case, strained. Worst case, it's completely broken. A parent or a brother or sister, one of your children or grandchildren, 
Yeah, that is family pain right there, isn't it? Well, something Jesus said about what divides families is where the conversation goes after a quick break. Now, I think we ultimately know what the answer is going to be to the question we're discussing in this episode of the podcast, but it will be a process getting there. And because family and the faith of our family is so important to us, well, this week I want to tell you about one of our Our Daily Bread publishing products that I think you'll find helpful. It's the Family Bible Devotional, stories from the Bible to help kids and parents engage and love Scripture. As parents and grandparents, one of our most important roles is to share our faith with our kids and our grandkids. And this is a family devotional that cultivates conversations, one that avoids simplistic answers and instead pulls kids into God's unfolding, mysterious story with all its twists and turns. Author Sarah Wells makes complicated terms a bit easier to understand for kids, especially in the age 6 to 16 range. And she designed it to engage rather than preach at our kids. And so go to discovertheword.org to order your copy of the Family Bible Devotional from Our Daily Bread Publishing. And now more discussion about the question, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? For this conversation, let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. And I think it would be good just to hear this in one voice. So, Bill, would you read that for us? Luke 12, verses 49 through 53. Sure. And this is Jesus speaking, right? I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Not exactly a Hallmark card, is it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like... I mean, we've been talking about how there's some uncomfortable passages, either with Jesus interacting with his family or talking about family. This is an uncomfortable passage, is it not? It's way uncomfortable. You know, when the angels announced the coming of the child, the Christ child, it was an on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You know, peace, the Prince of Peace, this is what we always think of with Jesus. And now he's Mm -hmm. talking about slicing the world apart. Yeah. It doesn't sound like goodwill. No. No, No, but I wonder if this is saying more about the condition of the world that we live in than it is about Jesus himself. He becomes the dividing line at some point, but that says more about us than it does about him. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. hold on to that. That might be worth coming back to toward the end of this conversation. I'd like to jump into some of the honestly, really complicated language in this too, Mm -hmm. like fire to the earth and baptism that, but Jesus already was baptized and like what is going on in some of this language. And so if we just look at that first phrase, I came to bring fire to the earth. The Greek there is to pour out flames upon the ground. So the Greek isn't going to help us feel better (laughs) about Mm -hmm. this particular passage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think if we just knew what the original words were, we'll feel better about it. But in this case, that's not the case. But I think one thing that's already going on here is we have an Old Testament reference 
because fire is a theme in the Old Testament as well. I'm thinking of passages like Jeremiah 5.14 that says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because they have spoken this word, I am now making my words in your mouth a fire, speaking to Jeremiah, and the people would and the fire shall devour them. And so there's this language that these words that I'm giving you, Jeremiah, that you're going to speak out are going to be like fire on the ground. So it's not literal fire, but this metaphor of the effect that his words are going to have as he speaks. And actually the gospel of Luke has already mentioned fire as well. And so if we look at Luke chapter three, verses nine and verse 17, we'll see fire already mentioned. Mart, would you maybe read that for us? Sure. Verse nine says, even now the ax of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. And John goes on to say, yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Verse 17 says, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So as your passage mentioned, Mark, this theme of fire throughout the Bible is often connected to God's judgment in some way. It's this picture of God burning away all that's evil and wrong in the world. Is that part of his judgment? So is that judgment or is that purification? Because we hear a lot in the Bible about fire purifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the scripture says God himself is a consuming fire. And the only way we can understand that is, Bill, I think, and in your sense, he's purifying. It's even Refining. his love. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's his love mm-hmm. even that's mm-hmm. consuming what is yeah. what is worthless. Mm. Yeah, so maybe that's part of what Jesus is saying here, that this purifying fire, I wish it were already kindled. And mm. if we hold on to that line for a second, let's skip to the next line where he talks about baptism and we'll come back to that. I wish it was already kindled, but maybe that's what Jesus is kind of referring to. So then he says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. If you remember, there's another place that Jesus talks about his baptism. It's in Matthew chapter 10, where there's a couple disciples that want to be on Jesus's left and on his right. And Jesus responds to them in verses 38 and 39. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And of course, in that passage, Jesus is referring to the suffering and death that he would experience. And so in this passage, we have Jesus talking about this judgment of God, this purification, and then it's connected with the baptism of death and suffering that Jesus himself is going to take on. So I think these two verses are actually parallel to each other, right? So the idea of fire and the idea of baptism, which is kind of funny, right? Fire and water. Mm -hmm. But you have these two coming together so that if you look at what he says right after baptism, he says, and what stress I am under until all this is completed. So I wish this fire was already kindled because this is the stress that I'm taking on to myself, this suffering and this pain that I'm going to experience. To take away the sin of the world. Right? to take away the sin of the world, yeah. to purify the world. And so then we get into this passage where he says, did I come to bring peace to the earth? No, but division. In other words, like I'm going to pay this price. And so we have this connection of the burning away of all that's evil and wrong in the world that God is doing connected to Jesus's baptism of death and suffering and evil to pay for the sins of the world, to bring us in right relationship with God. And then what's interesting is this is then when Jesus goes into the section where he says, did I come to bring peace to the earth? No division. Now, of course, for us, we have to stop and ask the question, well, what does Jesus mean by peace there? 
because we already talked about how earlier on in the story, Jesus is supposed to be someone who brings peace and goodwill to all men. So what does peace there mean? Well, what was the type of peace that Israel was expecting the Messiah to bring? I think that would be a military peace, right? Yeah. So they're expecting this Messiah to come and to rule and to reign and to push out Rome and for them to have peace. Physically. Mm -hmm. In that physical sense. And so I wonder if what Jesus is saying here is he's saying like, look, I know you're expecting a certain kind of peace, but I didn't come to bring that peace. In fact, as a result of what I'm going to do, there's going to be division, even division in families because of what I'm getting ready to do, because there's something bigger happening here. There's a bigger story unfolding. Yeah. And what he's bringing to light then through that division is really what's wrong with us. I think, Bill, you... Before yeah. you talked about this, may be more about us and the wrong in us that needs to be mm-hmm. brought to light. Yeah, because it's not describing necessarily his desire. It's more describing our response to him. And he is such a uncompromising figure in a sense mm-hmm. that by definition, we're going to respond to him in ways that can be opposite to one another. Yeah truth is painful and sometimes it leads to division and we see that in the world even today because there's families where somebody will come to faith in Christ and they'll begin following him and as a result they're pushed out of their family or they're rejected by their community that happens all over the world and so I think that's part of maybe a layer that helps us as we kind of unpack this passage together. I think we have to be careful to not read this passage and think that Jesus is saying, you know what my mission is, the very purpose that I came to the world? It's to Mm -hmm. divide the world. No, what he's saying is, no, like I've come to bring a different kind of peace that you expect. And that peace, if you really get what I'm trying to say, means that it might come with a cost as well. And that cost might look like families that split up or relationships that are broken as a result. So how does that help as we think through some of these uncomfortable passages? And how does that relate even to some of the other passages that we've seen up to this point? The word consequences, which is a hard word, comes to mind here. But I'm thinking about, once again, it's really an illustration of God's love for us, that he is allowing us the choice choices for us to align and our choices will have consequences Mm -hmm. and that's the hard part of it but it is a choice that he lovingly offers us yeah those divisions can bring out the best they Uh can bring out the Mm -hmm. worst Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and often that becomes the division i think in all three of the passages we've looked at each one of them has some element of family discomfort in it Mm -hmm. but i think You know, one of the things you've said repeatedly, Daniel, is that there's a bigger story going on here. And so I think another feature of each of these stories is that in some way, Jesus has been on mission, whether it's at the temple doing his father's work, or whether it's talking about a different family, a heavenly family, or now even as he's talking about the baptism of his coming death and resurrection. I think he's really describing for us his mission And to use your word, Elisa, some of the consequences that flow out of that as we make choices. Yeah. And the cost that's going to come with it. So I don't think Jesus is saying here that he came to bring division as if that was his goal, his purpose with coming. Instead, I think what Jesus is doing is he's warning all those who have ears to hear what he's saying 
that the expectations of what they think is going to happen next as a result of his ministry, those expectations aren't right. Jesus didn't come to drive out Rome. He didn't come to make peace in the sense of defeating Israel's enemies. Instead, he's bringing a different kind of peace, peace that'll be later referred to as peace with God. But that peace came with a really steep price. This fire, this baptism, this suffering that Jesus experienced, it cost him his life. But Jesus isn't the only one who ends up paying a price. Those who follow him are going to find out that it costs them something too. In this case, in this particular passage, it might cost some of the closest relationships that people have with one another, which is going to lead us into our next conversation where we'll finally examine the question, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? Because as we'll see, counting the cost is a big part of that conversation too. Let's read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35 together. And since it's kind of a longer section, we can just kind of go around the table. Maybe, Elisa, you could lead us off. Sure. Okay. Now, large crowds were traveling with him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him. And they would say there's no person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. So we finally got to the question that we've been mentioning in all of our conversations. Does Jesus really want me to hate my family? Because that's what he said, right? Guess so. (laughs) So let's just slowly walk through Mm. this passage together because there's so many layers to this passage. There's so many things going on. It starts off letting us know that there are large crowds traveling with Jesus. One of the things that we see as we progress through the life of Jesus, as we're told about it in the Gospels, is we see that big crowds become smaller crowds, become smaller crowds, to the point that when Jesus is arrested, he ends up being all alone, right? Like even his closest disciples run away. And so there's this progression. And I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, if this is one of those places where a few people in the crowd were like, all right, I think I'm out now, Mm -hmm. right? Like I Mm -hmm. thought I knew where this was going, but I'm out. Especially because we get to this word hate. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, and then goes on to walk through other family relationships as well. I thought it might be helpful to look up the Greek word for hate here, because sometimes knowing the languages helps us in these types of situations. It means to hate, to despise, (laughs) to disregard, to be indifferent toward. 
So the language doesn't help us out much there. Like, in fact, Jesus uses this same word in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. So all of that hate that we would think of when we think of the word hate is hidden in this Greek word. So that doesn't help us much. What's kind of the progression that Jesus goes through here? So he says, whoever comes to me and does not hate, what's the first First off, it's family, father and mother, wife and and children, brothers and sisters. Yeah. And then what does he say? Even life itself. Even life itself. That's kind of an interesting idea here. And then if we skip to verse 33, what's the other thing that we're invited to hate to follow him? Your possessions, everything Mm -hmm. you own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as I was thinking through this, Mm -hmm. I'm like, following you means hating my family, hating myself and giving up everything I have. And my life. Right. That's Yeah. And my life. life. Yeah. That too. Yeah. So the first thing that jumps out to me, and I'd love to hear what jumps out to you, is this is very all-inclusive of like everything that we think life is about. Is it not? Mm -hmm. What else jumps out to you as you think about this passage? Well, I don't want to run ahead of you, but as we were reading it, I kept thinking about other conversations we've had on this topic. Mm -hmm. And I kept seeing the word estimating the cost, you know, and there's consequences or a cost that goes along with following Jesus, Mm -hmm. being connected to Jesus, understanding our relationship with Jesus, embracing it. You know, there's stuff we leave behind. And and these illustrations help us understand that, I think. Right. You know, what comes to mind, too, is there's a story that's unfolding right now as he's speaking. And he's talking about disciples, those who are going to follow him. Well, Mm -hmm. he's, in a pretty short term, going to end up allowing himself to be crucified yeah. out of faithfulness to reveal the heart of his father and out of love and concern for the people of the world. So I'm just wondering if there isn't some of that too. He says, those of you who are just think you can be my disciple, you know, you need to understand where I'm going. Mm-hmm. What it's going to cost me. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he is the living illustration of everything he's saying in these verses. Right. He's giving Right. And he's doing it to reveal the heart of his father who loves us and has given us life. And so there's there, there's got to be like, I think you're already saying, there's so much behind these words. Yeah. And even in our last conversation, we talked about the judgment of God portrayed as fire and Jesus saying that I'm going to be baptized with that judgment. Right. I'm actually going to take it on myself in order to rescue the world. Yeah, that's the key. You know, I'm reminded, too, of Jesus' words. Remember when he told the, the crowds that were following him? In fact, he, he said to his disciples in John, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And they remember how much of his mm-hmm. disciples went home. They yeah. couldn't handle that. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to even what we were talking about in our last conversation about Jesus being a dividing line And what he's calling us to here is beyond me, but that probably says more about me than whether or not he deserves that level of devotion. And he's not calling any one of us to do something that he's not willing to do himself, which is to lay down his life. In fact, this passage, I think the interpretive key in this passage, so something that kind of helps us unlock the passage, is the extreme language that Jesus is using, where he says we're supposed to even hate life itself, like even hate ourselves, our own lives. And of course, Jesus, like we've already said, is the one who 
kind of illustrates what that looks like to lay down your life for others. But he also tells us earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, This is another passage that I think helps us unpack this a little bit, but he gives us a glimpse even earlier before this passage of what it's going to look like to follow him. So maybe we could read that. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And Elisa, do you have that for us? I do. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to become my follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? And back to what you were saying a moment ago about Jesus being the embodiment of sacrifice and so forth. Those words that he said in Luke 9 that you just read, Elisa, came right after his very first time of explaining to the disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and be killed and rise the third day. Yeah, so again, he's not asking anybody else to do something that he hasn't been willing to do himself, which is to lay down his life. And I think it's interesting, too, because we see life language in that passage in Luke 9. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. And so it's kind of like what Jesus is maybe talking about in this passage where he's talking about, you got to hate this, you got to hate this, you got to hate this, is that he's almost drawing attention to what are those things for his immediate followers then, but even for us today that we hold on so tightly to that we're like, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't impact this, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is the thing. And for some of us, Our families are that thing where like we hold on very tightly to our families or our lives or our possessions, right? That's very all-inclusive type of language in the context of counting the cost. Um, And that's where this passage, of course, ultimately goes. What are the two examples that Jesus gives of counting cost? Talks about building and, you know, Mm -hmm. needing to estimate the cost and see that you have enough stuff to do it. And then he talks about going to war. Yeah, war. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this is just another example. And Jesus is using maybe family as a good way to shock the crowd into realizing walking with me, walking the way that I am going is probably different than you think that it is because it ends in a cross. It ends in death. What's interesting, too, is the very last line that Jesus says in this passage. So he talks about counting the cost, counting the cost. None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up everything, all your possessions. But then he throws in this one line right before he says, anyone with ears, let them hear. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil, so for fertilizing. It's not fit for the manure pile. Hmm. It's just good for throwing it away. And then says, let anyone with ears to hear, listen. So why do you think that's thrown in there kind of at the end? Well, bottom line, isn't he saying that if you're not willing to follow to this extreme, then you're pretty much not following at all? Yeah, it makes me wonder, Lisa, if it has to do with purpose. I mean, the purpose of salt is a very specific thing. And once it's no longer able to fill that purpose, what value does it have? Mm -hmm. And if we as followers of Christ or people who at least want to be followers of Christ, Mm -hmm. if we are not honoring him or living for him in the way that pleases him, 
then what does that say about us living out our purpose? Yeah, I think you're right. It goes right to the issue of essence. What is the essence of us? Do we really want to find our life in God, or are we making idols out of things? Mm -hmm. Or even are we idolizing our own children or family members, Mm -hmm. you know, and allowing them to have our hearts in a way that doesn't really enable us to trust our God as the source Mm -hmm. of our life and our joy and our peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think, very much the key for all of these passages that we've been looking at, because obviously Jesus saying, hate your father and mother goes directly against, if we take that for face value, some of his other teachings, some of the other teachings in the scriptures that talk about honoring a father Mm -hmm. and mother, or the apostle Paul talking about honor within families and serving one another. So something else, again, is going on in this story. Jesus is trying to point forward to something else. And what Mm -hmm. he's saying is, is that for me, I'm willing to even lay down my life to serve my father and to bring what's best for the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is he's then putting that question out to Mm -hmm. everybody else and saying, do you really want true life, which I'm offering? Because what true life looks like that I'm offering actually looks like death in this world of letting go to the things that we think are ultimate and most important so that you can find true life. And so does Jesus really want us to hate our families? I don't think so. I think he's using hyperbole here. He's using extreme language to make it crystal clear that following him can cost us so much more than we realized when we first started following him. But that cost is for not only God's glory, but for our good and for the good of others. Good to hear Daniel say that. No, Jesus does not want us to hate our family. Uh, Taking that statement in Luke 14 in a literal, out-of-context, face-value way uh, misunderstands what Jesus was saying. But going through Luke and looking at these family-related stories and statements has definitely opened up some challenging passages to discover what it looks like to follow Jesus. So they will wrap up this study and bring some more clarity to our reading of these incidents and statements and I think leave us in a good place when it comes to this question that has framed this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. All right, but first, let's right now look ahead to what the group will be studying together next in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to go to an unlikely place in the Bible that describes what happened in an unlikely location at an unlikely time. The far-reaching ramifications of the ironic blessing, a surprise in the wilderness. Let's just read this together, okay? Elisa, you begin. Number 622, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so they shall put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. We're going to look together at how God actually does bless the nation of Israel, and also us, through these very words. A surprise in the wilderness on our next Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? 
We've talked about a lot of different passages this week. So could we just pause as we go into this last conversation and just rehash some of the passages? You don't have to necessarily remember the reference, just what we talked about. We started with Jesus being, quote, lost and his parents being frantic trying to find Mm -hmm. him and him going, why are you so upset? Didn't you know I'd be Mm -hmm. about my father's business? And they're still upset. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of saw that it was, that's kind of one of the first indications of Jesus giving priority to his Father in heaven over Mm -hmm. his human relationships, right, with mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And he does that again in the second passage that we looked at where he's got a big crowd around him and his mother and brothers come and want to speak to him. And Jesus' response was, who are my mother and brothers? They're the ones who do what I say. And we thought... Well, that was a little harsh. But again, it's prioritizing the spiritual over the biological. And referencing a different kind of family, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, those who follow him. But then it got more uncomfortable, right? (laughs) So what was the next passage we looked at? He came to set the world on fire. (laughs) Yeah. And talked about that because of him coming, there would be division within families and Mm -hmm. broken relationships and all kinds of stuff. And we struggled through understanding that one as talking about you're going to turn against different family members and we processed it and we we kind of grabbed hold of the reality that there are some consequences there are choices we make in how we're going to follow god yeah and those choices and what happens brings to light what really matters and Mm -hmm. what doesn't really matter in the long run Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah then in the last one we talked about the one you've been pointing us to through the whole conversation, Daniel, and that's, does Jesus want me to hate my family? And I was relieved to hear you say no. He does not want me to hate my family. I was relieved to finally be able to say no. (laughs) I think we should maybe take that question and flip it on its head. So Jesus says, I should hate my family to follow him. Well, did Jesus hate his family? And I think the passage that we're going to read today maybe will help us look back over all the passages that we've read with a different light because it's going to involve Mary, Jesus's mom, and his brothers. So this is Acts chapter 1. Now, the reason I thought it was okay to go to Acts when we're talking about the Gospel of Luke is because it's kind of generally believed now that the same author of Luke is the same author of Acts. Potentially, this was even one work, Luke and Acts together. And so I think this theme of family that Luke has been talking about over and over and over again in his gospel really comes together here in Acts chapter 1. And this is verses 12 through 14. Maybe, Mark, you could read those for us. Okay. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about half a mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. And here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together, and they were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Yeah, so what's happened right before this? What are they returning from the Mount of Olives? What happened on the Mount? The Ascension. Jesus Mm -hmm. ascended into heaven. Mm -hmm. Yep. So he gave the Great Commission. He ascends into heaven. A couple angels come down and they say, hey, the same way he went up one day, he'll come back this way. 
And then they go back to wait for the Holy Spirit to show up and for the day of Pentecost. While they're waiting for that, they replace the disciple Judas with Matthias, who becomes one of the apostles. And then we get this summary of these are all the people that are praying and worshiping and this new Jesus movement right before it really takes off at Pentecost. These are those first members of the Jesus movement. And who are those core people that are there? The disciples and women, and I love this, Jesus's earthly family, Mary and his brothers. Hmm. Yeah. How does that maybe help us think through some of the other passages we've seen this week? Here's Jesus's family. Like Hmm. they're still a part of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's interesting. The book of James, we believe, was written by one of Jesus's brothers. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul lists the different people that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the grave, one of them is the James that we believe was Mm. Jesus's brother. And I think that's really interesting because we think about, well, he goes and he meets with his disciples and the two disciples on the Emmaus Road and Mary Magdalene and the women. But with all of our questioning about how did he feel about his biological family, Paul seems to be saying that in all those resurrection appearances, one of them was directly to one of his brothers. Hmm. I'm also struck by on the cross, and Jesus, we don't have a record of too many of the things he actually said from the cross, but he says, woman, here is your son. And he says to John, the disciple, here is your mother. And he cares for his mother, you know, in the advent of his death so that she would be connected. I mean, I've always just been blown away by that tenderness. Yeah. And that passage in particular almost brings both of the ideas that we've been playing with this whole week together, right? You have this tension between biological family or spiritual family. Mm. And here's Jesus paying special care for his biological mother Mm. by connecting her with a bigger picture of family than Mm. we typically talk about. And so even that, right, kind of illustrates Mm. this idea that there's a bigger story that's going on. Yeah, and through it all, he's winning the hearts of his brothers as well, Mm. who had real issues with him for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in John chapter 5 where it says that his brothers did not believe in him. Mm-hmm. You know, you can imagine that there must have been some tension at family dinners and stuff because <laughs> he's out doing all these things, and they're the ones that have to deal with the overflow of some of that stuff. And you can just yeah. imagine that there was some a little bit of ill will there, perhaps. Bill, that's a great point. And now I'm wondering if maybe the brothers had not yet really trusted in Jesus yet or understood who he was yet, because why else would he give his mother over to a disciple to care for rather than another of her sons? Mm. Yeah, maybe it took the resurrection Mm -hmm. for them to finally be like, Mm -hmm. oh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now I'm starting to put it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is we've looked at a couple passages that talk about the cost of following Jesus. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what is the cost that Jesus's brothers pay as a part of the early Jesus movement? They were right there following him at probably great risk to themselves. Yeah. And so when we think about these passages where Jesus feels um, abrupt with his family, uh, rude, dismissive, as we think about passages where Jesus is talking about like even hating family to follow him, I think it's really important for us to realize that at the end of this story, Jesus is 
biological family was present in the upper room mm. after the resurrection. Mm. I think it just brings so much more context to all of the passages we've looked mm. at, even the very first one that was uncomfortable mm. where Jesus causes anxiety and stress to his mother. Mm. If only she knew the anxiety and stress she would experience later, yeah. right, at the cross. Mm. And so from very early on, Jesus is giving us these indications that there's a bigger story And this is kind of, I think, where some of that story begins to come together. And speaking of Mary in particular, you know, Mary is one of the few people that we meet before Jesus is born, when Jesus is born, Jesus at 12, showing up in Jesus' ministry a few times, following, walking with Jesus at the cross, resurrection, and now here in the early church. So it's interesting, like as harsh as some of these passages have felt about family, Mm -hmm. Jesus's family ends up being one of the core themes that goes through the entire ministry Mm -hmm. of Jesus, which is interesting as well. Yeah, I think a part of that too, Daniel, if you think back, you mentioned the birth of Jesus and following the birth of Jesus and before that episode in the temple that we talked about in our first conversation, when they brought Jesus to the temple to be circumcised and named, and then for the ceremony of cleansing later, Simeon said, this is the Savior. This is the one that I've been Mm -hmm. waiting to see. But then he turned to Mary and said, a sword will pierce your heart also. Mm. I always think of that as her standing at the foot of the cross and watching, but you have to wonder if there weren't perhaps dozens of times that a sword pierced her Mm. heart. Yeah, that's right. so true. Any other thoughts that come to mind about these different passages as we think about this in light of the fact that Jesus' mother and brothers were there at the end of the story as well? Well, I think best case is when our biological family becomes a part of that larger Mm -hmm. spiritual family that you've been talking about. I mean, that's best case. It doesn't happen all the time, and it doesn't happen for everyone. I think all of us have people we love who who either don't know the Lord or have real issues with Christ and the scriptures. And and we know how much we want them to experience the Jesus that we're given in the scriptures and to be a part of that larger family. Yeah. And what's so clear is that in the end, he won their love. He won yeah. the love of his mother and his brothers. He did it in unconventional ways, but they were with him in the end. I love that. I love that. And just a a humble yieldedness in our own hearts as we may be at times tempted to evaluate ourselves, our value, our worth, etc., by family, rather than our connection with God. You know, Mm -hmm. he loves us that much, and we're not called to evaluate ourselves by family, but rather just by our connection. Yeah. And the church ends up being described as a family later Mm -hmm. where Jesus Mm -hmm. marries his bride, which is the church. And all of us are adopted into this family of God where we're brothers and sisters of Mm -hmm. one another. And so this idea of family gets so much bigger and better Mm -hmm. than we ever thought it could be. So I think it's worth revisiting the question, does Jesus really (laughs) want us to hate our families? Of course not. (laughs) In fact, Jesus invited his own family into his mission of reclaiming the world from sin and death. He invited his own family to look past even their biological connections, like you just talked about, Elisa, Uh to be connected spiritually as a part of God's family. And the really good news for us is that he invites us into that family as well. 
we all had a feeling we were going to land in a place like this when we started our conversation asking the question, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? As Daniel said, of course not. But I think it's been a helpful perspective-shaping time looking at some of these surprising things about family that we find in the life and teachings of Jesus. You've been in the Gospel of Luke for this edition of the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Now, Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And you know, it's thanks to the financial support from listeners that we here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries are able to provide materials that help people grow in their relationship with the Lord. And know that your gift today, no matter the size, will help us continue to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. You can donate online today at discovertheword.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.